Let's start in Romans chapter 8 tonight. I want to talk to you a little bit about supernatural guidance. Romans chapter 8, verse 14, Paul, inspired by the Holy Ghost, said, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Then verse 16 tells us how he's going to lead us primarily. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You know, there's probably nothing that I can imagine at least that's more important to have the Holy Ghost bear witness with you uh, concerning than the reality of being children of God. Let's go on in verse 17 as well. And if children, this word if is the word since. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. And since we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be, we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. Now the suffering he's talking about there is persecution. That's the only suffering that uh, the Bible indicates that we should expect in this world that we live in. We've talked a little bit in uh, times past about the Last Supper and how John records information specific, uh, specifically information about that Jesus shared with them about the Holy Ghost. And there are several scriptures in the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John that indicate what the Holy Spirit would be sent to do. He would testify of Jesus, the Bible says. He wouldn't speak of himself, but that which he hears he'll speak. He'll dwell with us forever. He'll show us things to come. But if those things were just automatic, then the church, the modern day church, would operate in a lot more power and a lot more of the supernatural than we do. The reason that it's not, or the way that Jesus intends for the Holy Ghost to bear witness with us concerning all of these things is through the Word. John 6, 63, Jesus said, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Well, then, therefore, we would have to understand that all spiritual development, all of the work of the Holy Ghost, bringing us knowledge, divine wisdom, supernatural revelation and such, would come from and could only come from the Word of God. Don't ever let a day go by without having at least one scripture that you're meditating on. Take one, at least one scripture every day of your life. And speak that scripture to yourself. Meditate in it by muttering it or saying it over and over and over again on the inside of you. That's the way that the word of God soaks into our spirits. That's the way that we can be equipped when we have need of supernatural or divine help. One thing particularly when Jesus said that the Holy Ghost would bring all things to your remembrance. You can't remember something you never knew. And so that presupposes that we're focusing on the Word of God, that we're meditating on the Word of God for the purpose of getting it down on the inside of us to give God something to use to lead us and to guide us. And certainly, He's going to lead us into the, the beautiful truths and the revelation of Paul's gospel. That's what verse 17 is all about. If we're children of God, thank God we are. Since we're children of God... We're heirs of, of God, joint heirs with Christ. In other words, one of the things the Holy Ghost is going to lead us to do and bear witness with us is who we are in Christ and what belongs to us. You remember in Ephesians chapter 1, that's the essence of Paul's prayer, that he was inspired by the Holy Ghost to pray for the churches. 
and that the Holy Ghost gave us a record. He prayed that we would, the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, that we would know the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power that works in us as believers. Those are all encapsulated here in verse 17. So Paul is capturing the essence of what Jesus told the disciples in John's gospel that John records for us. And of course, John didn't write the gospel that bears his name until much later after Paul and Peter both had been uh, martyred. So when Paul writes these things, he's not aware of the things that John would write by the Holy Ghost in the gospel that bears his name. Now, I want you to turn back with me to the book of uh, Acts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 19 real quickly. We're not going to spend a lot of time on, uh, on this story. I, it's one of my favorites, and I do like to go through it oftentimes. But just to kind of hit the highlights of certain things, Acts chapter 19 tells us the story of when, Peter, when uh, Paul is in Ephesus. And he's having one of the greatest revivals of anywhere. Well, it is the greatest revival, the greatest results of anywhere that he's ever been. Let me back up. Uh, let's start in verse 1. I didn't intend to read the whole thing, but I'm, I'm impressed to go ahead and do it. Acts chapter 1, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed to the upper coast, came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believe? And they said unto him, We've not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto, them, uh, unto what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Notice they have a dual working of the Holy Spirit, a, a second experience. The first was they believed on Jesus and was baptized. That's referencing salvation. And then the second experience, or second thing that happens to them, is Paul lays his hands upon them, and the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. The same experiences that are available for you and me today. And all the men were about twelve. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly by the, for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. Now notice in verse 8 it says, For three months they were in the synagogue disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Well, the kingdom of God is that which God has provided for us here on the earth. Jesus defined the kingdom of God in the Lord's Prayer when he spoke to his disciples, teaching them to pray. He told them to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus identified the kingdom of God as being that, the will of God being done in our lives just like it is in heaven. So when Paul is disputing and persuading concerning things of the kingdom of God, it means he's teaching them who we are in Christ. 
it means he's trying to persuade them concerning not only the new birth, but who we are in Christ and what belongs to us. But not everybody accepted that. And so he winds up separating the disciples and teaching daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Notice the far-reaching effects of the ministry that they uh, have going on in Ephesus. From that one place, since Ephesus was such a crossroads major city, from that one place, they're able to send the word in missionary fashion, perhaps, to all of Asia. They didn't have to go to all of Asia to get the word there, but because of the people coming and going, they'd get somebody saved, they'd teach them the truths of who we are in Christ, and as they returned back to their home city or wherever they came from, they would wind up evangelizing even as Paul was doing here in, in Ephesus. Verse, 19, verse 11, And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over him, over them which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of one Seba, a Jew and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, and overcame them and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and the Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. I want you to notice that the Christians in Ephesus, at least a certain percentage of them, believe in Jesus all right, but they're still participating in, in um, uh, operating in these occult practices. And even in Ephesus today, you can find where there were all kinds of temples, and different shrines erected to offer sacrifices and so forth. And apparently, a good portion or some, some number, some percentage of the church had incorporated Christianity as just another God that they're worshiping. Until this situation happened with the seven sons of Seba. When it says that the, the evil spirit that was in this man spoke to them and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? It made a distinction, a delineation between the seven sons of Siva who were exorcists, which would indicate that they have some experience in working with demon-possessed or demon-controlled individuals, but nothing like the power that was displayed in this one event and it sparked a city-wide revival now folks as we read just a few verses before in a space of two years all of asia heard the word 
but then something happened that even increased and enhanced the revival work that was taking place. And it says, after the people gave up their idol-worshiping tokens and books and all the other things, it says, then so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. The implication is when we sell out to God, that's when things really take place. Rather than just trying to incorporate God into our lives in some way, but rather commit ourselves totally and completely to him, that's when the word of God will prevail in our lives and in our churches. After these things were ended, verse 21, I love this verse. After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. One translation, I think it's Richelieu's translation, said the Spirit of the Lord moves Paul to plan to go to Jerusalem and then after that to Rome. You can see here from the language of the King James even, where it says Paul purposed in the Spirit. The implication certainly is that the Holy Ghost is moving on Paul, is influencing Paul to show him where to go next well why would Paul want to leave the place that he's having the greatest ministry results the greatest revival in, that we have record of throughout his whole ministry because he's sold out to whatever God wants to do not just trying to find the most comfortable place for himself I would imagine that a lot of people if they were like Christians today would have stayed in Ephesus for the rest of their lives and why not Look at the supernatural results they're getting. God's working special miracles by the hands of Paul. But Paul knows that that doesn't mean that he's supposed to stay there forever. He simply knows and recognizes that God confirms his word with signs following. Now, the part that we won't read is in chapter 20 and in chapter 21 where it talks about Paul going to certain cities and through certain cities and it tells us, well, Paul said himself in chapter 20, that everywhere that he goes, the Holy Ghost is witnessing to him that bonds and afflictions await him in Jerusalem. Now, the people in the cities, the people that are coming up to him, are apparently misinterpreting what God is trying to get across to them. Because they're trying to talk Paul out of going to Jerusalem because they know by the Spirit of God that he's going to be put in bonds and taken captive as a prisoner. They would assume, I guess, and I would imagine it would be much the same today perhaps, but apparently they, they assumed that since the Holy Ghost was letting them know about Paul's future and the things that are going to happen to him when he goes to Jerusalem, that that's God trying to tell him not to go. But Paul understood the difference between the warning of the Holy Ghost and the leading of the Holy Ghost. Paul understood that the Holy Ghost was letting him know, being faithful, to show him things to come. To show him the bonds and afflictions that await him. But he knows that that's not the Holy Ghost telling him not to go. He understands that that's just the Holy Ghost telling him what's going to happen. Now, turn with me over to Acts chapter 27. I would imagine that the people that were moved on by the Holy Ghost, and you remember in one certain place it tells us about Philip the evangelist who had seven daughters who prophesied. They prophesied to Paul by the Spirit of God through their own interpretation again. 
that he shouldn't go. And while Paul is there, Agabus, the prophet, comes down from Jerusalem. And he takes Paul's girdle and binds his hands and says, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews bind the hands of the man that owned this girdle, like he had signified through the, uh, through the wrapping around of his hands and his wrists, I guess, in the same way. Well, if God wasn't trying to, if, now these are supernatural things. This is supernatural revelation in every city that Paul went to. For what purpose? If it wasn't for the people to talk Paul out of going to Jerusalem. If it wasn't for that, then what purpose was it for? Well, looking back at it, I think we can easily understand, maybe better than the people that were experiencing it in real time, but we could certainly understand that that would be a good reason for the people to pray for Paul and pray for his journey and such. And that seems to be the majority reason, maybe not the only reason, but the majority reason for why the Holy Ghost is revealing these things. Paul doesn't need to hear it over and over and over again. Paul's already settled about what he's supposed to do. He's the one that talks or refuses to be talked out of going to Jerusalem. So he didn't need it. Well, if he didn't need it, then it must have been for the benefit of the people that received the revelation. That revelation should have brought them to a place of prayer. What they should have done, and this is easy for us to say, I guess, but what they should have done is brought the revelation to Paul saying, the Holy Ghost seems to be telling me this. Does this mean anything to you? And then he certainly could have said, well, yeah, the Holy Ghost has told me to go. And you're not the first ones that have told me what's going to happen when I get there. But instead, he has to try to talk the people out of, even Agabus, perhaps, the prophet that comes down from Jerusalem. He has to talk them into understanding that the Holy Ghost is leading him to go, and it doesn't make any difference if, that's what, if the bonds and afflictions are ahead of it. He's going to do what God wants him to do. Well, in Acts chapter 27, it comes to one of the last legs of the journey and Paul is being taken after he has been taken captive in Jerusalem he appeals to Caesar and once he did that then he is according to Roman law they have to take him to stand before Caesar to stand before the emperor so they're going to take him by ship and it tells us um, let's start in verse 9. We'll skip over some of this and for the sake of time. Acts 27, verse 9, it says, Now when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive this, that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. Now notice he didn't say that God told him. He didn't say the Holy Spirit has revealed to me. He said that he had a spiritual perception. I perceive that this voyage will be with much hurt. Not only the, the freight that you're taking aboard, but also of our lives. Paul seems to have something, and here again is a, an inward witness. The only thing up to this point that Paul's been operating on is the inward witness that he has about what God wants him to do and where he wants him to go. That's going to change a little bit here in this 27th chapter. 
So he said, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. Here's a question for you. Why didn't Paul, who was an apostle, a prophet, and a teacher, why didn't the Holy Ghost speak to Paul in a much more dramatic way or a more spectacular way? You do understand there's a difference between the spectacular and the supernatural. I think a lot of times people are looking for the spectacular, which might be a dream or a vision or something like that. And they ignore the supernatural, which, put, which is always the inward witness of the leading of the Spirit of God in your own heart. Paul certainly understood the difference between those two. Now, what was it that created the spiritual perception in Paul? We would have to recognize, as we said before, that the, the source, the heart of all spiritual, spiritual development is first and foremost the Word of God. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Something else Paul said writing to the church. He said everything that's not of faith is, of sin, is sin. In other words, there is something, there is some way, there is some method for you and I to operate in faith in everything that we partake in, everything we endeavor to do in our everyday lives. The Word of God became such a priority in Paul's life, and he taught, it to, to be a, taught us to have it be a priority in our lives as well. That when we speak the Word of God, when we meditate on the Word of God, when we study the Word of God, when we do the things that are necessary to plant the Word in our own hearts, when we water the Word of God by speaking it and meditating on it over and over and over and over again, then that gives the Holy Ghost something to work with. That gives the Holy Ghost something to bear witness with in our own spirits. See, I think a lot of people are trying to get the benefits of divine guidance without putting in the work when it comes to placing the Word of God in our own hearts. I would submit to you folks that everybody should have a spiritual perception in their lives about the things that they're experiencing or the things that they're facing just like Paul did. Paul didn't have something special in that regard because he was a minister. In fact, if anybody was due something spectacular rather than just supernatural, it would seem to be Paul. But even when the ministry of God that God has called him to unfolds in his life he's operating by the inward witness same as you and i because it's the number one way that god will lead us and guide us so paul says sirs i perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage not only of the lading and ship but also of our lives now let's skip down to verse let's skip down to verse 18 it tells about the, the trip, and after a couple of days, the first few days of clear sailing, they run into trouble just like Paul perceived that they would. Verse 18, and we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship, and the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. They're starting to get rid of the freight and the things that they're carrying along with some of the, the ropes and the pulleys and all that kind of stuff for the sails. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, 
and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. Verse 21, but after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not have loosed from Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God has given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe, God, that it shall be even as it was told me, howbeit we must cast upon a certain island. Now here's the situation where they, the people, the owners of the ship and the sailing, the crew that sailed the ship could have avoided the whole mess from the beginning if they had listened to Paul. But they got in a hurry. They were trying to get somewhere in winter, a fresh harbor, a safe harbor so that they could spend the winter there. And that haste got them in trouble so that it looks like they're about to lose their lives. But at that point, after Paul has followed the inward witness, after Paul has followed the leading of the Holy Ghost, not a spectacular leading in any way whatsoever, unless you would consider the, the witnessing of the Holy Ghost in the cities that he went through to be spectacular. But those things, as we just discussed, were more for the benefit of the people that received the revelation rather than Paul. It didn't affect Paul's plans one way or the other he's following the holy ghost whether he has somebody else that witnesses to him about being taken captive in jerusalem or not but he gets to the place where he says things are not going to turn out well for this ship it's too late for us to go well how do you know paul well i don't exactly know i just have a spiritual perception now he has contact with an angel after being on board it talks about three or four days of clear sailing and then they ran into this tempest and it talks about being in the middle of the tempest for many days. I'm not sure how many that would be. But from the time that Paul has the visitation from the angel, they still have two more weeks, 14 days more into the middle of this storm. So Paul says, I've had a visit from an angel. Now that goes beyond supernatural We'd have to recognize that to be spectacular. Now, was the angel there to keep the storm from coming against them? And something else about this, remember when Jesus was here in his earthly ministries, whenever he was on board a ship that wound up being in the middle of a storm, he, al he always spoke to the storm and it calmed down. Why didn't Paul rebuke the storm? Folks, I'm well satisfied that if Paul had been able to, if he had had the power of God or the Holy Ghost come upon him in measure to stop the storm, he would have done the same thing that Jesus did. But sometimes storms are to be handled in different ways. Some storms we can just speak in the face of and they'll quiet themselves down or be quieted down. Other storms are for enduring Paul seems to be in an endurance storm this time. But God is faithful. He sends the angel to tell him that not only will the, all the people be saved, 
but that God is looking out for him to bring him before Caesar just as the Holy Ghost has prompted him to do. There was an um, English minister that was impressed of the Holy Ghost to start a school, a Bible school, a live-in Bible school in 1938. Now, in 1938, this individual did not know exactly what was going on, but his testimony many years later was that it was something that the Lord directed him to do and to make haste to do it. In other words, get the Bible school going as soon as possible from the point in time that the Lord impressed upon him to do it. Well, England entered into World War II, I believe in 1939, so it was just about a year after the school had been started. And the Lord changed the curriculum, changed the focus of the school once the war began. And there were some really, really unique things that the Lord used this school. And it wasn't a large group. I think it was about 15 students. But their focus became one of prayer. And the, the guy that started the school was a man that was greatly used in prayer, given to prayer. And so he taught these students how to pray, how to yield to the Holy Ghost. They were all spirit-filled. So he taught them how to yield to the Holy Ghost and pray the will of God concerning the war effort. And communication was lax in those days, and so it wasn't like there was a daily paper or nobody was getting on the Internet to find out what was going on. But there are things that they journaled and kept record of where the Lord would use them to pray specifically with certain battles that they didn't know were going on. It's one thing to be in the middle of war. Since they were away from the city, they were out in the country uh, in one of the little villages. They didn't have to deal with the bombings, the air raids, and so forth that were taking place nightly in London. But being out in the countryside, they were cut off from a lot of the means of communication that were available. And so God would have them pray certain things and then they would pray out these, the interpretation of their prayers in many cases. And they would find that they were praying about battles that were taking place in other, other parts of the country, other parts of their country, and in other places as well. When the Allies were fighting against the Germans initially, and then Italy joined in, and Japan. And there would be things that they would pray through before these battles would take place. It was fascinating the way that the Holy Ghost would use these people because they would journal something about a battle that they fought in prayer, as they would call it. They considered themselves to be soldiers in the army of God just as much as the soldiers of the allied forces were in the battle or in the fight. And so there were a lot of things. It's a fascinating story to see the things that, that the Lord used them in to win the battles before they were ever fought, naturally or physically. Well, the war ended in 1945, and these Bible school students, after having been together for six or seven years, these Bible school students went back to their own hometowns or whatever else God had for them to do. And this, uh, this man, the Bible school phase of his life, was over 
but he was still used greatly in prayer. And so as people, the uh, soldiers began to return to their homes and so forth, there were a lot of readjustment difficulties and problems that would take place. And so the Lord began to use this guy to pray for the people in, in his village. And there would be other villages that he would go around to and kind of make a circuit out of preaching along the way or preaching in churches that he, when he reached his destination and so forth. And God would give him assignments to pray for certain people. And of all those assignments that the Lord gave to him, and again, these are things that were part of the journal, he would secure their, their salvation first in prayer. But there was one guy, he came back and, and the work that he had done in the, uh, in the war was such a, a life-altering, personality-altering type thing because of all the death and the destruction that he saw and was a part of. He was just hardened to such a degree that everybody in the world, everybody that knew him in this village just gave up on him. But this one guy wouldn't. He wouldn't give up on him. Now, over a course of time, it wasn't a matter of him praying in secret. He made friends with this guy, or as much as the other guy would allow him to make friends with him. And he shared with him that God had him praying for the, the soldier, the ex-soldier. And he had an opportunity to witness to him dozens of times. And every time the guy said, I'm just not interested. If you, a preacher, if you'd seen what I saw, you'd think differently about God and who's doing what and whether or not God is good and so forth. And so there were people that he was acquainted with that just kept encouraging him to give up. Don't pray for this guy anymore. You're wasting your time. But he wouldn't give up. He wouldn't turn loose of the, what he believed was the divine assignment. And finally, right toward the end of this guy's life, one of his friends, one of these younger ministers, asked him, why won't you give up on this guy? What makes you think that he's going to be saved? And the minister answered very simply, he said, I've seen him in heaven. And, of course, what he meant was the Holy Ghost had shown him the things to come. The Holy Ghost had revealed to him what this man's end would be. Well, it wasn't too much longer after that that the man died at a ripe old age. And while he, didn't, he never saw this guy come to the Lord while he was here on the earth before he died, this man got saved at his funeral. Folks, there are things where the Holy Ghost will show us things to come. What things will he show us to come? I, I think a lot of people are looking for uh, divine revelation so that they can play the stock market. Or divine revelation so that they can invest something in just the right thing and see it come to pass or see it bring blessing into their lives. But first and foremost, the Holy Ghost is going to lead you into the Word and then secondly, he's going to show you things that God prompts you or leads you or guides you by the Holy Ghost toward. I love the story of this guy and his response. He wasn't anxious. 
he wasn't worried about the guy because he had seen him in heaven. I'm sure that gave him a confidence in his praying. I'm sure that created a confidence in the prayers that he did pray for this guy. Now, why would the Holy Ghost show that to one person and not show him to others? I think we make a mistake oftentimes by hearing things like this and thinking that that's just for preachers or just for people that have the a ministry call in their lives or something like that. But folks, God doesn't play favorites. There may be things that he shows you concerning the work that he has for you to do, whether it's ministry-related or not. But God loves everybody the same. He's willing to show himself faithful and show himself strong to one just as, well, just as well or just as easily as another. I think we ought to have more of these things taking place in our lives. I think if we gave the Word of God the place of priority that it should have in our lives, we'd have a lot more of these things happen and take place. You may remember in Proverbs chapter 4, beginning in verse 20, My son, attend to my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from before your eyes. There's something about the Word of God that God wants us to see. Now, granted, when we take the Word of God and meditate in the Word of God, whether it be for healing or finances or whatever else that we're believing in for, we have those scriptures that promise us the things that we're believing for. And those scriptures, when meditated upon, will enable us to see ourselves with the answer. But I believe it goes even further than that. Let them not depart from before your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life unto those that find them. They are life unto those that find them. Folks, there's a discovery process to the word that when we give ourselves totally and completely to putting the word of God first place in our lives, to seeking what God's will is for us, just like when Paul was ready to leave and willing to leave in Ephesus. He's leaving the greatest revival that he had in all of his ministry here on the earth, his ministry time on the earth. And what does he leave for? To be taken prisoner by the Jews. And to be sent to Rome to appeal before Caesar. And appealing to Caesar, we know that he finally gets there. The Bible really doesn't tell us about any great results that took place because he went to Caesar. It doesn't tell us that nothing happened. But by the time he gets to Rome, Paul is expecting the Jews from Jerusalem to have sent a, a, an envoy or at least letters against him for the emperor to judge him by. But by the time he gets there, the people in charge say, we haven't heard anything about you. Paul entered into Rome pretty much an unknown. And the Bible doesn't really tell us about anything other than the fact that he stayed there for two years in his own hired house and had the freedom to come and go as he pleased. But he was so committed to whatever God wanted that he was willing to leave the greatest ministry results that he'd ever experienced in Ephesus. About a month ago, 
I had the Lord reveal something to me. Now, there have been different scriptures and different things that the Lord has quickened to my heart over the last several years. Most of them just as I was awakening in the morning. But this was different. It was morning, but I was wide awake. I was getting ready for the activities of the day, getting my shower done and all that kind of stuff. And I had two visions. Now, my eyes were open, so I have to assume that they were open visions. But they were about things that had not yet taken place. I won't tell you all about them because they're things that most of it was personal to me. But one of the things in the second vision that I had, and one happened and then five seconds later the other took place. It wasn't a quick, fast as you snap your fingers type thing, but they were connected to one another and they came one right after the other. And this second one gave me something Well, it gave me something in a spectacular way that I'd already accepted in a supernatural way. I saw myself as a part of the other things that were taking place in the vision. I saw myself completely healed. And folks, for a moment, I, I don't know how to describe it any other way than maybe use Peter's description. It had such an impact on my feelings. I have never felt so happy in my life just for that split second or two. There was a happiness, as Paul, as uh, Peter spoke about it, joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's the phrase that came to my mind after it was over and after I was thinking about it. But I've never been one to really give in to feelings. I've never really cared once I found out how faith works and, and how we should follow the word rather than however we feel. I've never put much stock in feelings one way or the other. I don't look for feelings. I don't follow them when I have the feelings. But this was such a, uh, an overwhelming euphoria, maybe. I, I'm not sure what words to use. But it was something that was, that was significant and so much different than anything else I've ever had. That for the last month or so, five, six weeks maybe, during that period of time, I can't get away from that vision I had. I just can't get away from it. Not that I'm trying to, not that I should try to. But there was such a drawing element to what I saw that quite frankly I couldn't doubt the word of God concerning healing if I tried to. The Holy Ghost will show us things to come. I'm sure Paul had great confidence after the angel appeared to him, wouldn't you think? He knew what God had given him to do to begin with. He knew that the Lord had spoken to him about going to Jerusalem and then going to see Rome. So he, would, he already had confidence that he would make it to Rome. But the angel brought him more information. Revelation concerning the plan and the purpose of God. And he became the lifeline. And that information, that revelation that the angel brought to him became the lifeline for everybody on board the ship.
I want to encourage you to, pl- to pray and to confess the quickening power of God. In, in Psalm 119, there are five different things that David prayed that he would be quickened by. He said, quicken me, O Lord, according to your word. Well, again, that's something the Holy Ghost will bring to your remembrance once you put the word of God on the inside. Then he said, quicken me, Lord, in your way. It's good for us to know the way of God. That goes back to what we talked about, the storm. Jesus rebuked the storm, but Paul rode one out. Which one was God's best? I believe it was God's best for each individual situation just the way that it happened. David said, quicken me according to your righteousness. He said, quicken me according to your judgments. And then finally he said, quicken me according to your loving kindness. Folks, there's a quickening work of the Holy Ghost that God wants to bring to you. He wants you to have. He wants you to know what's coming. He doesn't want us to be taken awares, unawares, or surprised by anything that the devil would do to us or bring against us in life. Quicken me according to your word. Quicken me in your way. Quicken me according to your righteousness. Quicken me according to your judgments. And quicken me according to your loving kindness. Those are all works of the Holy Ghost that will take place in our lives when we put the word of God in our hearts and keep it there and find the truth of the word. Come to that place through meditating in the word of God where we're so full of the word that anything that we soak up water like a sponge. We should be soaked in the word of God just the same way so that any pressure that comes against us from any direction, the only thing that comes out of us is his word. There's a place of dwelling in God that he calls it the secret place of the Most High. How do we enter into that secret place of the Most High? By putting the word of God in our hearts and making it a part of us, making it the real us, no matter how we feel or what things look like. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who shows us things to come. And Lord, we petition you that even as we have placed your word in our hearts, even as we meditate in your word concerning the things that we face or the challenges that we find ourselves, we ask you to quicken us by the Holy Ghost, quicken us by your word, quicken us in your way, quicken us according to your righteousness, quicken us according to your judgments, and quicken us according to your loving kindness. Father, thank you that the Holy Ghost never leaves us. Jesus, you did not leave us comfortless. But instead, we have the comfort of the Holy Ghost every day and in every way. Thank you, Father, for revealing.